0: Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast. We're back. Uh, I was going to say back after a sabbatical, but I haven't been sabbaticaling. I'm not sure about Finey, but we'll uh, get to him in a minute. Uh, Been plenty going on in my neck of the woods. I'm sure it's the same for him and I'm sure it's the same for you people out there. We've got plenty to uh, keep you abreast of. In fact, we are recording this uh, not long after a pretty important AFL announcement, which we will discuss in full detail in our news segment, as well as uh, give you our thoughts on the recently completed trade period and, uh, gee, some big news stories emerging from that, including some some, uh, tough times at a, a major establishment club no prizes for guessing which one. As I say, a very good afternoon to my footyology co-host, Mark
1: Fine. How are you going, Finey? Good to see your smiling face here, your dulcet tones. Of course, I see your face, but the fans of this podcast will just have to do with your dulcet tones. So, your neck of the woods, you've been busy. My nape of the way, I've been busy. Uh, is that what? the same Doing Um, virtually, yeah. Nape of the Way, neck of the woods. What have I been doing? I have been attending to a large family. I've been attending to a large garden. I've been attending to a bit of a project born out of something that I used to do on SEN, initially speaking, which has been turned into a game show and that's had some success at an awards level. So we've done some work on that, which was good fun. And, of course, I've kept an eye on trade week, a very close eye on trade week and a half or whatever it is. Um, the US elections were interesting. Or was like, what? Are they over? I guess in one mind, they will never be over. Correct. And all the while counting the minutes till we reconvene as we are now for footyology because I've been asked by a few people. In fact, big Cheerio to Holly and Kit. Now they're my you know, my daughter's twenty three, so they're that sort of age. They're really big fans. They're they're Patreon members. And yeah, g'day Holly and her boyfriend Kit. We're back, baby. Well-
0: Well done Holly and Kit for becoming official Footyology patrons as you too can become if you aren't as yet. uh, Just head to the Footyology Patreon page and become an official Footyology patron. We've still got oodles of great material on our website and the podcast is back and there's some other exciting projects we're going to be working on which will be revealed in the fullness of time. I'll tell you one thing, I want to reveal itself in the fullness of my stomach, finey, and that is
1: an Andrew's Hamburger. I want one now. I'm hungry. I've, oh, I really would love one. Just a really good... I'd, I'd get it right now. I'd get the double patty because I'm hungry. Big cheese, some beautiful crispy chips, and a soft drink. I'm not scared to drink soft drinks, full strength. Andrew's Hamburger's. Bridport Street, Albert Park. They are kings of their domain, and their domain is making burgers.
0: You know, I I thought you were about to uh, burst into a a famous advertising jingle in, which I think would lend itself very nicely to Andrew's hamburgers and, of course, the one that starts, how does it happen? You're milking a cow or telling them how. Matter of fact, I got one now. A big cold hunger. Needs a big, juicy hamburger. That doesn't rhyme. And the best hamburgers are at Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park.
1: That's a good ad. That's that's well done. That was my John Mellian
0: impersonation.
1: Yeah. It's either that or we can get the Hawking brothers to do it. Yes, yes. Andrew's Hamburgers, nothing better. (laughs) Melbourne
0: bitter, nothing better. Melbourne bitter. That was a great jingle. Uh, Great jingles. And I'm also interested in great home renovations, Farnie.
1: Yes, well, great jingles and great, not bingles, but great builds. And I'm talking about West Point Properties. Nick Bartels kept his hand in right through COVID, under the restrictions. Now, as they open up, why don't you call him for a reno, for a, you know, what? He might have been able to save some money. Build a beautiful house. Nick Bartels, West Point Properties, give them a call.
0: They are brilliant. And uh, we've talked at length about the heated uh, floor tiling system. And I haven't been able to get rid of that hobo out the back of my joint because I made the mistake of uh, acquiescing to his request to get those heated bits of corrugated iron and uh, he is just so comfortable. He never wants to live anywhere else again um, which isn't perfect for me but uh, I'll, I'll... Sounds wouldn't... like my kids Yes, yeah, well uh, they're, a, they're another matter altogether uh, Alright, enough uh, to-ing and froing and being silly we have a lot of important stuff to talk about. Let's do that right now
1: On Footyology News feed.
0: Well, plenty of news around. Obviously, the uh, trade period wrapped up last week and we will get to that. But just today, in fact, shortly before we are recording this, we're recording this, um, the AFL has announced a swag of rule changes for next year and um, trials of rules at lesser levels. And uh, there's quite a bit to get through. Um, And will they make a difference or not? Let's look at them in detail. So uh, probably the most important one to take effect immediately is a further reduction in the interchange cap, which will be coming from 90 down to 75 interchanges per team per game. Um, There's been a tweaking to the rules concerning the man on the mark who will now be given only a set Uh, Area of latitude, if you like, of one metre to move laterally either side of the mark. And if he impinges further than that, he will be automatically penalised 50 metres. So definitely a tightening up of uh, what the man on the mark can do. Um, Kick-ins, they're uh, fiddling with that. Again, the space between the kicker in and the man on mark has been um, extended another five metres from 10 metres to 15 metres. And uh, obviously the clear rationale there is they'd hoped that the initial extension from five to 10 metres would have led to more players kicking, uh, playing on from a kick-in. That really didn't happen at all. So dragging back another five, see if that helps create a bit more flow and transition out of defence. Um, what else have we got uh, look the rest uh in terms of definite changes well there are there are none really, but there's a couple of things that appear like they're pretty certain now. One is, and I'm very thankful for this finding that the quarters are expected to revert to twenty minutes and not this silly in between eighteen minutes that there'd been a fair bit of talk about. Clubs uh, also understand. To, we understand clubs have been told to expect 22-game seasons, so another return to normal on that front. But the one I haven't mentioned here, Fadi, and uh, I'll get your reaction on this first, because if it does end up coming in, it is no doubt the most dramatic change. That is that in the second-tier competition, which is really sort of starting afresh next year, that is the old... VFL with new teams added uh, and more of a national look about it. Um, there will be trialled all of next season new rules, which are effectively zones. Um, they will be seen at the centre bounce, as we've seen already for the last two seasons, the six-six-six rule, but also effectively a six-six-six rule at boundary throw-ins and at kick-ins after a behind. So now. More instances where players will be required to pair off so that there are six players in either 50 metre arc and six players in the middle of the ground. They're going to, I think, this is a good idea, giving that a whole season at this lower level to see how it unfolds. If it is deemed to be successful, uh, more than likely we will see that introduced to AFL football for 2022. So a fair bit to digest there, finding, What's your immediate reaction?
1: I've got no confidence in the current rule makers. They completely stuffed up a major part of season 2020 with the over-correction over, um, over after Clarko's comments with holding the ball, not well-explained. Not well And then equally as mysteriously returned back to the way it was. Again, not well explained. I actually have very little confidence in Stephen Hocking and his team and Gil McLaughlin running this part of the game. There are elements of the game Gil runs very well. I I understand reduced interchange, but that is easy. We'll just keep reducing it and reducing it if we want till we get to what KB was talking about, which is barely any interchange to bring back the endurance. I don't mind that. That's fine. The best thing that they've done, as you said, is just go back to 22 games and 20 minute quarters. That is certainly the best thing that they've done. And that is just madness. That stuff in the second tier competition. So when the ball's out of bounds on the half ward flank, players are going to have to scurry back how quick to, how long do they have to get back in the position i mean and, and if otherwise are they going to be anchored in certain parts of the ground because you know what i love the beauty of our game is 18 players anywhere anytime that to me is the best part of the game
0: well okay i'll uh, i'll take you up on a, a couple of those things i agree i think mean, 20 minutes, a no-brainer. I think 22 games, why alter that? Um, I think none of these changes would have worked if we were going to have reduced quarters. Jack Zeebel was pretty good on this the other day, saying that, you know, a lot of the scoring now happens when players are fatigued, and that simply wasn't happening enough with the 16-minute quarters we saw this year. So that had to be hand-in-hand with that. Now, again, the 20-minute quarters isn't official, but we're led to believe that he's pretty much going to be the case. Of what's been announced officially today, I'll say this. I I appreciate the intent, but I think it's just more window dressing. I don't think... I think the game has got to a state where we need more radical change than these slew of changes are offering. Interchange down by another 15 rotations won't make that much difference. You really won't be able to notice it, I would suggest. You barely notice the drop from 120 when that was the cap down to 90. So how are you going to notice another 15? It really is a negligible difference. I don't think that will have much impact at all. Um, The zones, again, I, I understand your concerns about this and I think the danger here is, that you're trying to open up play and create more flow and a more continuous game. However, the policing and the scurrying, as you put it, that's going to have to happen for guys to get back into their zones at these throw-ins, I think will be a time consuming affair and will slow the game down. So we'll have more dead periods when players are getting in the right positions. So, Quid pro quo, you you pick up a bit more openness of play, but you lose it in the adjustments that have to be made to get in the right positions. Thirdly, again, window dressing. I don't think there's enough of this stuff that happens to have a pronounced effect. Look, there's plenty of throw-ins, but they don't consume much time and they don't consume in totality enough percentage of a game to make a significant difference. Ditto kick-ins. I think. Look, I'm not opposed to zones per se, but my if my view would be, if you're going to trial zones at a lower level, go the whole hog, have permanent zones, and see how that works. All right, it might not work, but let's see how that operates when you've got them for an entire game, not just for bits here and bits there. And this is the problem with six 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 finding. I think we all agree there were moments when six 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 worked. But you're talking about a total of about two minutes in a game that lasts well over 100. It doesn't make enough of an impact for long enough. So I've got big concerns for that. Personally, I've come to believe firmly that the only meaningful change will be made with reducing the numbers on the ground from 18 to 16. Why didn't they try that at the lower level? So again, I appreciate the intent, but I don't think anything we're seeing here will go far enough We'll have the same debate again. And if they're going to only make these changes incrementally, does this mean that it's going to take us until 2030 to finally have an open, freer-scoring game? Because we're moving so slowly, I fear that's the case. And what damage could be done to the look and reputation of the game in the intervening 10 years?
1: Yeah, well well said, well put. Rowan, here's the problem with the extra zones and applying them at boundary throw-ins. We know footballers, definitely at the top level, are very quick to adapt, very clever to tactically exploit. Now, the idea of recent years has been to try and eliminate boundary throw-ins, and clever teams will get to the boundary to try and exploit players being out of position and try and do that without intentional out of bounds you can do that easily by kicking to the boundary line to a pack and that can have the reverse effect of too much ball being played near the boundaries and the ball going out of bounds as a tactical ploy I could see that happening what happens when a player is injured um, and he can't get back to his zone in time after a goal you've got the opportunity to interchange and whatever but can be bloody hard, bloody hard for a boundary throw-in if a player is not necessarily down on the ground, but just struggling to, you know, struggling to run because he's injured. That's not fair. 50 metre penalty. So the ball's being thrown in 50 metres around from the goal, and there's a penalty. Does that take you to the behind post? Is that an advantage? I'd rather get the ball in a more central position than up against the post. So I don't know whether it's necessarily the right penalty anyhow. And I hate the idea of we're going to be stricter on the man on the mark. The only time that ever works is when the player on the mark anticipates what the umpire should do and call play on and the umpire is too slow and then penalises a 50, I hate 50 metre penalties for a, a, a guy on the mark moving with the guy who's got the ball playing on it's just not fair and to make that even more onerous is ridiculous um that is a real that is a really inconsistent look any rule to work well and to be appreciated by the fans needs to be able to be seen by a fan when it happens and those 50 meter penalties that whistle goes and sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't it's a lottery and to increase that lottery is just annoying for fans and for players. And I've umpired and it's annoying for players, I'm telling you.
0: Yeah, you no, all, all very good points. And, and again, um, you know, I don't know where you stand on this one, but look at the complexity of what we're talking about and how many different sort of levers, as they like to call them, we're pulling to get to advance not very far. You could do take care of all of that by removing... Four players to each side from the ground. We have a game that is chronically congested. Yes, you can artificially segregate players, but they will remain apart for a very short space of time before the natural congestion, which is the way the game is played now, reasserts itself. How do you, how do you appease that problem? How do you get rid of that problem? You remove the elements that are making congested to with the players. And then In doing that, you don't have to fiddle around with half a dozen other rules. You don't have to tweak the man on the mark or the distance at the kick-in or establish certain situations where you have zones. I mean, there are so many changes which people hate. Yes, going to 16 a side is a major change, but it's a simple change, an easily understood change, and I am convinced that of everything that's been thrown up as a possible remedy to congestion and to like chronic low scoring, that is the only one that will make a meaningful difference. I really would have liked to have gone, seen them go to 16 at the lower tier, try it for a year and see how it
1: works. Well, they have, I mean, they have, we saw it for a long time in the VFA. It's it, we it was need to see high scoring. We need to see it at the highest level, but it makes sense. It absolutely makes sense to go to 16 because we accept that players, in fact, we accept that human beings are faster than they were a generation ago, bigger, cover the ground more quickly. The sports science and interchange mean that we're just getting players, too many players can get to the ball too quickly. So you make a good point. And, you know, that's why all those years ago, when Sir Kenneth Luke envisaged a ground that the then VFL controlled, The idea was for Waverley to be huge because he understood the congestion at smaller grounds would kill the game.
0: Yep, yep, no, spot on. And in the same way that we had reduced quarters this year, and people started arguing that that would give us higher scoring, I don't know how that you, you what sort of mind it takes to argue that sort of logic. But of course, it didn't happen. I mean, we you know we we had shorter. Periods in which it was possible to score, less fatigue to open the game up. So the defensive systems just became even more predominant. I mean, it's, I don't know, I think there's an element of not seeing the forest for the trees with this. I also think with the reduction in players, I suspect that the AFLPA, you know, would be pretty intransigent on this one because you're depriving however many players across the competition of an employment opportunity. And I understand that from their point of view. But again, I I fear that these changes, however well intentioned, uh, will be no more than window dressing and 12 months later, we'll be talking about the same stuff and contemplating another raft of rule changes. You know, if you're gonna use a, a lower tier competition to be a guinea pig, Institute some meaningful change that will really make a difference for the bulk of the game, not just for a few moments here and a few moments there. All right. Rowan, I'll just,
1: in closing, you know what, before I read Rule Change 1, the alarm bells were going off loud and loud. How infantile, how, well, let's call it sophomoric, for the AFL to say that they're looking for more Dustin Martin moments. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what, what level of intellect and dialogue does that open up? Well, what are they talking about? I mean, you know, are, are, we, getting, are we getting football run by, the, by people whose knowledge of the game is garnered from the back of a footy card? I mean, if they go going, well, I, yeah, no, I agree. And I,
0: I thought with that, surely the analogy you're looking for, if you have to come up with a name is more Lewis Jetta v. Cyril Rioli moments, isn't it? It's players covering distance in space and indulging in a foot race. Dustin Martin, when I think of Dustin Martin moment, I think of him in traffic, breaking clear with brute force and the don't argue and snapping a goal in tight space. So it's the wrong analogy to use anyway, apart from being
1: pretty cliche. No, I couldn't couldn't agree more. It's just to, to appeal to somebody in Sydney who's going to write it up and, and you know, the same person that called Mark Lecrae, Mark Lechris.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how is Tim Webster? Uh, no, that was Nathan Buckley resigned. 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 Yeah. Well, maybe now,
1: it's, maybe now he's getting closer to it. All right. Just a couple of Cook quick ones. Uh,
0: a couple of quick ones we won't comment on, but uh, more news today. Players are going to be asked to take a 3.5% pay cut uh, for next year. Uh, That's on top, remember, of the 29.2% pay cut they took this year in this COVID affected season. So, uh, probably done all right to escape with only that small a cut. In terms of the salary cap, the salary cap is going to be coming down 9% from 14.5 million per club to 13.1 million per club. Um, the football de- uh, club football department spending, this is going to be the massive hit, and we've already seen some of the ramifications of that. Football cl- uh, department spending will um, reduce from 9 million to 6 million. That's a 33% cut. Even my basic grasp of maths tells me that. Uh, boy, that is going to take a pretty savage toll, I think. So there you go. We're still in mid November, and uh, the ramifications of COVID, I guess, in a lot of ways, with those later figures I just gave you already being felt. And uh, in terms of the rules of the game, I guess the scourge of what has happened to the game tactically over the last two decades still being played out and probably will be for a while yet. Let's talk uh, reasonably briefly, finally, about the trade period, which wrapped up almost a week ago now. but. It was pretty massive um, and no doubt in anyone's mind, I think the story out of it was Collingwood, which basically stuffed up its Salary Cap and uh, put off doing something about it whilst they thought they were a flag chance, got to the end of this season and boy, have they had to take some drastic action. Goodbye, Adam Trelaw. Goodbye, Jaden Stevenson. Goodbye, Tom Phillips. And not getting great return for any of those three, really, it's fair to say. And potentially jeopardising, I think, the uh, fabric of that playing list wasn't a great couple of weeks for the Pies. They have been whacked from pillar to post for it. I think quite rightly, some conflicting messages coming out from the key players there. Uh, And uh, Eddie Eddie Maguire, president, finally bobbed up after uncharacteristic silence from him to say that the reaction was basically the media trying to stitch up Collingwood, um, which was a pretty weird sort of response, I thought. But any doubt in your mind, Finey, that Collingwood was the story of the trade period?
1: Oh, no, it's the biggest story of any trade period since they've brought in the salary cap in a trade period. Look, I just cannot believe that they continued through Ned Guy's Um, ham-fisted, even though, uh, you know, at least he had the guts to front the media. He was probably pushed there. You know, it's like, um, hey, Ned, answer the door. We've ordered pizza. No, it's not the pizza. It's the media. Now, the door screams behind him.
0: He was thrown under the bus. No doubt about that.
1: Yeah, but I tell you what, while he was under there, he did a pretty ordinary job. He, he, He copped all four wheels in the axle. I mean, he just didn't explain it with any logic whatsoever. You know, we want to go back in the draft. So why did you get rid of three draft choices between 20-odd and 30-odd? Just throw them away like confetti. You know, you you had number 14 already. Stop mentioning it. You only got number 16 or the other way around. You know, why do they keep mentioning, oh, we've got two picks in the first round. You had one already, you morons. People aren't that stupid. It's no, There's no salary cap issue, but you've cut $2.5 million of spending. You're not going to be able to spend that on the plays you pick up in the draft. I mean, it's idiotic, and people don't like being treated like idiots. And even a week later, when Eddie finally talks on the matter, which is just, you know, to say that's not Eddie's form, not his modus operandi, is so obvious. Anyhow, he's been pointed out, you know, it it was a cowardly or just, you know, hoping it'd go away. Well, it's not going away, mate. You know, and he claims that Collingwood were getting picked on because they are the sort of club that doesn't make themselves available to trade radio and other media outlets during trade week. And that's why the boots were put in. (laughs) <laughs> boots were put in by your own fans, mate, not by the media. The media the media danced on your grave a bit, but the boots were put in by your supporters. Don't yeah. worry about us, worry yeah. about them. I've I- got to say, I've, I've never seen
0: Collingwood supporters that angry about anything I can remember, really. It was quite... Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, but- they, they were really off tap about it, and I, I think, with some... Justification. I, I think you, you're right about Ned. Guy, it was a it was a car crash interview, and you just kept looking, thinking, "Oh, mate, you, you're not handling this well." I mean, why on earth you would try and deny that this was a, a salary dump um, is just beyond a terribly
1: orchestrated salary dump. Yeah, Salary yeah, yeah. dumps. Salary dumps can work, but you can't make it obvious to other parties that that's what you're doing. You have to dangle good players and pretend. That it's something else, but you know it would. He says it wouldn't have happened if Trelaw hadn't. He's you know that the impetus for this whole discussion was based around his girlfriend moving north, and then you had Nathan Buckley telling him the players don't like him. This is outrageous behaviour by a club that don't have the guts to look players in the face and say, you know what, we signed some big deals with you, and we effed up because. Nobody at this club knows how to run a spreadsheet or owns a calculator and we've got the numbers wrong and people have to leave. But no, they wanted people to... And I've seen this happen at work where, you, you know, and it's, it's against the law where you bastardise somebody so they quit. You know, it, it sort of happens when people try and avoid payouts. But it was appallingly handled by... Even Nathan Buckley, who normally knows what to say, he tweets the day afterwards, this was the hardest day in my football life. wasn't about you, Bucks. Yeah, no, it was,
0: it was, couldn't agree more. It was, the whole thing was really distasteful. And that tweet of Nathan Buckley's, uh, and that phrase particularly, it reminded me so much of Rupert Murdoch fronting the Weverson inquiry about the news of the world and saying, this is the most humble day of my life. And yeah. you knew it was absolute bullshit. Um, and yeah, look, you just you can't treat people like that from a, a variety for a variety of reasons. And it was a terrible look. And one of the things I'm, I would say this on a general level, but particularly with regards to Adam Trelaw, one of the things I hate most about trade period is when a reasonably big name leaves a club, or if a club is going after a player and they don't get him or whatever, the sort of revisionism that happens and. Adam Trelaw has been a fantastic player for Collingwood. And all of a sudden, it was all, oh, you know, he sprays his kicking and he doesn't work hard enough defensively.
1: Injury injury prone, bad user of the ball, not like by the the glue of the club. Yeah, it's
0: it's, it's totally, totally unfair. And I think, you know, given what he endured, I think his response, um, being as measured as it was, was uh, very commendable on his part. Ditto. Jaden Stevenson. Stevenson. Um, yeah. and, and to me, the best representation of how poorly they did out of those deals. What about Tom Phillips going to Hawthorne for pick number 65? No, are you telling what...
1: me he's not a better player than that? Yeah, but Hawthorne have done it again. They are the stupidest club in the AFL at the moment. You know, they've got $2 million, they love a bargain fourth round for Scully, fourth round for Patton, fourth round for Phillips, but they're carrying their wages. You know, they've, they've got almost $2 million tied up in those three players. Well, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't want $2 million tied up in Scully, Patton and Phillips. A jeepers.
0: All right. Well, look, let's just talk quickly, because we've got to wind this up, about other... For me, the other big winners out of the trade period were fairly apparent. Some of you may dispute this, but I, I thought Geelong and the Western Bulldogs came out of this period really well. Now, people are going to look at Geelong and go, well, they're old and they've just got older again. Well, no, they haven't really because they've lost Gary Ablett and Harry Taylor, which reduces the age significantly. And I think their pickups are terrific. Jeremy Cameron, enough said, yes, he's had a poor year, but we all know how good he can be. He is finally the top quality spearhead they've been looking for to partner um, Tom Hawkins. And Sean Higgins and Isaac Smith, yes, they are old in football terms, but there's two guys who are still playing really, really good football. I think both can be really valuable additions to them. Um, so I, I reckon good on the Cats. They still think they're a chance of a flag. They were 21 points up in the grand final a tick before half time. So they're pretty bloody close. And I think that was great work by them. Do you agree on the Cats?
1: Um, yeah, well, if you're happy to, which they should be, happy to have a big crack at the Premiership in the next two years. At least we'll know fairly quickly whether it was the right move or not. Um, I don't know whether Isaac Smith still plays his best footy. Sean Higgins hasn't missed a beat. He's a beauty. And Why wouldn't you try Jeremy Cameron? We know that Richmond got Tom Lynch after their first Premiership, but he has added immeasurably to that forward line with Jack Riewoldt getting older. Similar situation to Hawkins. And Has garnered them two more premierships, so that's that's a a no-brainer. Getting the likes of Jeremy Cameron in, absolutely. My other big winner uh, was the Western Bulldogs. Um,
0: uh, They've picked up Adam Trelaw to you know, arguably what's already the AFL's deepest midfield. So that's a huge bonus. They hung on to Josh Dunkley. They've got that sorely needed. Ruckman to give young Tom English a chop out and Stephen Martin doesn't have to ruck a huge percentage of each game. And uh, I like Mitch Hannon as a pickup too. I think, um, you know, it's easy to forget how good he was for Melbourne in 2018 when they made top four. So I think they're all really good pickups and they haven't really given away much at all to get them. So uh, good work by the Bulldogs in my view.
1: Yeah, I'm not as sure if they kept Dunkley, which they did, there's no way they would need another midfielder. And I know Collingwood's playing part of the wages, but it's still going to cost them six or 700,000 a year. And they just do not need another midfielder. McRae gets so much of the ball. You've got Dunkley, who's sort of not getting as much as he used to because he's being used a bit differently. There's only so much ball you can get. And, I just wonder you know that Bailey Smith's an absolute beauty. I tell you who I wouldn't like to be now is Riley West. He'd be scratching his head thinking, well, you know what why on earth am i how long am I going to bide my time at this club that they look, they succeed because it's a very convoluted thing how we put our list together now, but apparently they are going to pick up the next great. Key forward, and that's what makes their list changes for next year so exciting. Um, that Jamara Hugel, Bugle, Bugle. Sorry, I'll learn his name eventually.
0: I'm not bailing you out on that one. Sorry.
1: Well, um, I'll,
0: I'll throw on that. Yeah, I reckon they could have another potentially great key forward uh, arriving besides him. You know what his name is? Not Josh Bruce. Marcus
1: Bontempelli. Well, that's the thing. And that's where I I think it falls over a bit. Look, he's just a great midfielder who goes forward. He's not a great kick at goal. He's like, that. they've got to keep using him in the midfield. He's just a beautiful midfielder. Yeah, rolling forward, maybe a little bit more than previously. But, you know, he, he, he's, he is required in where the ball is. So, yeah, use him wisely. All right. Now, I, I understand
0: the reservations. I think Geelong and the Bulldogs have done really well, particularly this year in a draft where there's a huge degree of uncertainty given um, junior-age players in Victoria haven't played at all. So, yeah, yeah.
1: No, all uh,
0: we'll uh, remain to be seen how well all these clubs have done out of it. That's enough news. Hang
1: on, hang on, hang on. A lot of talk about Essendon during the trade period.
0: We haven't got time for it. I think we save that one up to next week, Farnie. We right. really that'll haven't be, got time be, for I'll it I'll be interested
1: to hear what you have to say. Now or
0: then? Then. Okay.
1: We'll <laughs> uh, talk about our own clubs next week.
0: All right. Well, I'll say this. I, I think Essendon did okay. Uh, I don't mind their pickups. Uh, Hind, uh, Caldwell and... Um, uh, the other one i've dropped right. uh, Peter Wright. Uh, Peter or two meter Peter. How am I traveling? and still have three top ten draft picks I think they've done pretty well, but you know it 's how they use it 'll tell the tale yeah look we 'll we'll keep talking draft next week there's just a lot of news on the agenda today, and we 've got plenty of other stuff to get through too because finally our wonderful off season segments are returning it's time to get into the first of them right now. Life Hacks, building
1: a better world.
0: All right, well, if you don't remember how this works, it is uh, a series of random observations about uh, things that uh, we've observed during the week and it might be things that have uh, got our goat or um, have made us happy or just worth mentioning. Uh, could be anything, could be anything. It's a very, very open playing field. Um, I'm going to kick us off, Finey, and I will kick us off by saying that the coverage of the US election, and I will be referring to this later, but geez, it's a fascinating exercise to watch. Um, and I watched CNN and I thought their coverage of it was absolutely superb. However, the absolute highlight of the US election for me, great result if your politics are of my persuasion or or if, you, if you're vaguely sane, I would argue. But uh, for me, the moment was the incredible symbolism of the way both Joe Biden's victory and with it, Donald Trump's defeat was confirmed. You know that expression, finding life imitating art. There will never, ever be a better example of this than what unfolded in the back car park of Philadelphia's Four Seasons Total Landscaping Establishment, where Rudy Giuliani held a press conference to update the US media on Trump's latest legal <laughs> maneuvers. Uh, I'm not even going to try to explain this story. There's too many elements to it, but if you're not familiar with it, just Google it. It is, this was a scene out of Veep. This was a scene from the thick of it. This was a scene from Arrested Development. In fact, it was so outlandish, it was even too much for those shows, I'd suggest. This was a uh, political team which somehow managed to uh, not get a booking at the proper Four Seasons Hotel, um, felt obliged to follow through with the communique to media and ended up in the grubby padlocked back car park of a landscaping company at the back car park, situated next to an adult bookstore (laughs) and across the road from a crematorium. Um, And there's been several pieces written about this, all magnificent. It wasn't just that. It was the fact that as the press conference, with the uh, hastily erected signage behind them, they're still trying to muddle through and make it seem like nothing was amiss. Just as Rudy Giuliani was about to launch forth, the news came through that CNN had called Pennsylvania for Joe Biden, thus confirming the victory, and they called the election. So did all the other networks. And right at the moment, Giuliani began to speak in his grubby little car park. Out people spilled onto the streets to celebrate the victory, tooting their car horns. Uh, Giuliani goes to speak, notices the disturbance and says, what's happened? And someone says, they've called the election. He goes, which network? The entire media, assembled media, yelled at all of them, (laughs) <laughs> whereupon Giuliani just completely lost his crap. It is, it is just an incredible moment in history and to the point where I've now ordered a T-shirt with Four Seasons Total Landscaping on it, as have many other people. This is a soon-to-be historical monument that will go down with the Dallas Book Depository, the theatre in which Abraham Lincoln was shot, uh, various other important Um, landmarks of US history have now been joined by a decrepit car park in suburban uh, Philadelphia. What an incredible story that was, and the perfect, perfectly symbolic end to the Trump presidency. All right, I rambled on a bit too long on that one, but it was just outstanding stuff for you. Yeah, great.
1: Fantastic. All right, you're up. All right, so I'm um, COVID-related and a little bit political. Now, I know Daniel Andrews speaks to us again on Sunday and now 19 days with no cases, no, no sign of it in Victoria. We are hoping for major return to COVID normal. I'd like to see the masks made optional. I don't like them one bit, but we'll see how that plays out. What we do need is sort of a bit of a reward for our fastidious keeping of restrictions over an extended period and also something to help the sectors of the economy that have been most harshly affected and New South Wales has done it. A $100 voucher to every adult in New South Wales to use on restaurants or entertainment. You can go to Luna Park, you can go to the museum, can go to the movies or you can spend it at restaurants and they're handing out six million of them. And I certainly, and it's great for their restaurant industry for their dining industry and great for their public. Britain had a scheme where they subsidized meals for three months. I think 50% were paid by the government. If any people on the planet deserve a bit of a Pat on the back, and any industry anywhere needs a kickstart. It's right here in good old Melbourne, good old Victoria. So, gimme, gimme, gimme the voucher, Daniel. Yeah, I like that idea. I like that
0: idea. I think, uh, I think uh, it's it's a winner. So, uh, let's see how we winner, go with that one. Winner,
1: free chicken dinner.
0: Yes, correct. Uh, all right, my second one. Um, well, the uh, the ring of steel around uh, Melbourne's metropolitan area has come down, and I took advantage of that with my partner, Abby. We drove up to Mildura on Saturday to visit her father, and a uh, very big hello to Wally Ford, if you're listening, Wally, and your lovely partner, Janine. We had a nice time in their company Um, pretty hot old place on Sunday, Mildura was. There were dust storms and it was 42 degrees and you got to get used to it and I wasn't. But one thing I consistently notice on any country drive finding, particularly this one being uh, a six-hour job, is is not the lifeblood of any country town. Well, of course, you've got the football club and the netball club and the pubs. But along with them, I would put the local bakery, because no self-respecting country town can be complete without a very well-equipped and very good bakery. And I have sampled a couple of absolute rippers, Fonny, and I'm going to name them and give them a shout-out. On the way up there, on the Calder Freeway, of course, we stopped at Bridgewater, and we stopped at the Bridgewater Bakehouse And they were very proud to uh, tell the virtues of their vanilla slice, the number one vanilla slice in the country, they claim. As honoured at uh, several vanilla slice awards, well, I'm not big on vanilla slices. I haven't had a lot of them, but I thought I'll give it a try. Well, it was bloody fantastic. So if you're keen on a vanilla slice, I can recommend the Bridgewater Bakehouse. Similarly, on our return, Uh, It was about mid-morning. I hadn't had a breakfast. I got uh, a little bit peckish. I thought, you know what I need? A beautiful home-cooked country-style pie. What's better than a country-cooked pie? Well, we stopped in Witchy Proof at Bakery on Broadway, where I availed myself. I said, what do you recommend? What is the most popular pie here? They said, without a doubt, it is our chicken korma pie. I was a little bit sceptical. Can you combine the elements of Indian food with pastry and uh, the Australian pie fetish? Well, this was a marriage made in heaven, listeners. It was absolutely sensational, Uh, beautiful pastry. The filling, delectable, melt-in-your-mouth stuff. I had one of their vanilla slices too just to top it off, and it was pretty good. But the absolute highlight for me at Bakery on Broadway in the main strip there of Witchy Proof, Undoubtedly, the chicken korma pie. Wonderful people there too. Very friendly service. Nice looking place the way they've done it out. Plenty of tables and chairs to sit down and eat your goodies when you purchase them. It was the perfect bakehouse establishment finally. And I don't think I'll ever be able to go on a country trip again without stopping at conceivably every town's bakery just to sample their wares, which makes me think, how big is my waistline going to be if I do that? The answer, absolutely enormous. But well worth it. Beautiful establishments, both Bridgewater Bakehouse and Witchy Proof's bakery on Broadway. Wasn't Witchy Pooh with HR Puff and stuff? Witchy Pooh was Witchy yeah. Proof. Haven't you heard of Witchy Proof? It's pretty well-known yeah, yeah, of course Yeah. Okay.
1: Witchy Proof. All right, Some you're food. up. St Kilda got a play from there once called Greg Dax. No good. Um, You know, the king of the mountain. You run up Mount Witchery Proof with a sack of wheat. Um, Just on bakeries, I've got to throw in, on the way to Adelaide, Beaufort Bakery is magnificent. Home of Brad Crouch, by the way. The Nil Bakery does the Ned Kelly pie, which is famous. Brilliant bakery, Nil Bakery. And when in Adelaide, Head out of Adelaide and go to South Gawler Bakery. It is one of the best in Australia. So there you go. Okay. Um, you'll be interested in this, Rowan. Where I live, uh, don't have a lot to do with the neighbours. One side, there's some flats. The other side, house similar to our own. I think I'm in a music war with the woman next door without ever really speaking to her. So I was doing some stuff outside a couple of days ago. And I thought I'd turn up the music. It was a beautiful day. Nothing offensive. I didn't go Ramstein. I would have liked it. I played some Akadaka. I played some Johnny Cash. Um, what else did I play? Oh, a bit of... You wouldn't know him. Scroobius Pip. Oh, he's a beauty. Um, and today, for the first time ever, there's this very loud chamber music floating over the fence. The most offensive I don't know what it was. It was, I don't know why anybody would listen to it. It was sort of female singing, a dirge, unless you're planning to top yourself, you wouldn't listen to that in a month of Sundays. It was nothing to do your outdoor work with or enjoy life with. It was just this sort of horrible droning sound. So she doesn't know it, but tomorrow, I reckon I might start off with, oh, you know, you know who I might start off with? Um, Mudvayne, that'll put her on her—that'll put her on her ass, nice and early. we might go on from that. Can I
0: give you a recommendation? Yeah. Uh, because I, I love this album, and I've been giving it an absolute flogging. But it is pretty damn loud and shouty, and it is Canada. Uh, I'm Donald Trump. It is Canada's cancer bats. And the album is called Birthing the Giant, their daily yeah, album. That sounds about right. Oh, uh, it's great. It is great, Fonny. I reckon you'd like it, actually. It's pretty full on rock and roll, but it is loud.
1: Do, so do you know Mudvane's song, Dig? Uh, I think I do know that, yes. Mm-hmm. That'll, that'll wake her up. What's the earliest I can play it? Uh, 7 a.m., I think. Yeah, well, we'll be, going with, we'll be digging at 7 a.m. She plays that rubbish
0: again. Uh, dueling stereos. Yeah, I remember my old man was a big classical music fan, but he he drew the line at chamber music. I remember he wasn't a fan at all. Oh, this was horrible. Right. Uh, my last one is a very quick one, and you touched on this earlier, but uh, a bit self-congratulatory. As a Victorian finey, I am very, very proud of my state. It's been a bloody tough year. We've been locked down, seemed like forever, but we always said, and we were always told, if we stuck with it, we, we would. Uh, the results would be right. People were skeptical. There were naysayers, even in our own ranks, reprehensibly. Uh, hello, Tim Smith, the member for Q. Um, uh, and you can do something Q. But uh, it's been a, man, a fantastic effort by all Victorians to follow the guidelines. The result now that we've had 19 straight days of zero cases zero deaths, we appear to have got on top of the virus. Yes, um, there will now be agitation for everything to be stripped right back. I still personally think we, having made this much progress, it'd be a shame to throw it all away by being careless again. Uh, But it's been a wonderful effort to do what we've done given how dire things were looking only in what, July, August, Um, and a credit to all Victorians for hanging in there supporting each other largely and um, turning things around. So uh, well done, Victoria. That's my final life hack. What's yours?
1: You know, in advertising, they say sex sells. And you see it. Basically, they've thrown, they throw sex at every product. You know, motor cars, all forms of alcohol, real estate, whatever. But there's a new one. I saw an ad on TV a couple of days ago. I could not believe it. Now there is a company called Bear Cremations, BARE, and it's quite a serious ad talking about uh, a far cheaper way of having a funeral. It's a cremation service. They say 80 uh, percent, up to 80 percent reduction on normal funeral costs you can pay in advance. It showed elderly citizens um, you know, being uh, sort of uh, happy with the news that there's an 80 percent reduction, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the whole thing is presented by a blonde bombshell in a very tight white T-shirt that just has the letters B-A-R-E on it in black. And it is the most incongruous thing I've ever seen in my life. You know, why would a, you know, why would a sort of um, page three girl, and that's really what she is in looks, um, be selling cremations, prepaid cremations? What time was this ad on, Farnie? It was just—it was on. It's on cable TV. It was on my Foxtel. You'll see it you know, during the, you know, seven o'clock
0: at night or something. I don't know. Mm, I might say a bit about uh, Foxtel's struggle for revenue of late and the advertising they're prepared to accept for not much. Um, interesting, yes. Uh, slightly macabre. Uh, all right, we covered some different sorts of territory there. That is life hacks back on the Footyology podcast agenda as is this segment a favorite of ours and a favorite of yours so i've been told what is it this is it video the radio star. Video vinyl the video and video star. pressing rewind on our favorite music movies and tv All right, I I love this segment. Uh, Always good fun taking a trip back in time. And uh, we're running out of years, but there's still a few decent ones left. And this, I reckon, is a particularly good one for what we're talking about, the best in music, movies and TV. The year is 1997. And finally, I'd
1: like you to kick us off with your choice of music from that year. Look, I shamelessly say that my music tastes are as broad as yours are narrow, but that's not an insult because you are, um, you know, you are so well versed and so passionate about a certain type of music, whereas I am, I'm more sort of um, foot, foot loose and fancy free. But I love, you know, I love certain types of dance music, electronic dance music. I to enjoy going out to it. Now I just enjoy listening to it. So one of the great bands, or great, not a band, the great um, musical act is the Chemical Brothers, who I saw in the famous Boiler Room at Big Day Out, when Big Day Out was still a thing. And it was just fantastic. They Their second album came out in 1997, and it really is seminal. Chemical Brothers because it is meant to roll track into track and take you on a dance journey but some of their tracks are pretty famous it's, the album's called Dig Your Own Hole uh, I guess if you've got a broader knowledge of electronic music and dance music you might know Block Rock and Beats which has some lyrics to it it's a really good track, Block Rock and Beats then there's Electronica, um, which is a uh, fantastic, again, dance track and probably my favourite piece of music. It's called Don't Stop the Rock, which is just, again, you immerse yourself in Chemical Brothers. It was only their second album and really, even though they produced more commercially um, successful Products and, and went from more of, you know, big stage to actually producing singles, this really established them as a great, famous and I would, I'd describe them as um, genre creating and sort of um, very important musical act and it's called Dig Your Own Hole.
0: All right, well, uh, you'll be pleased to know I've taken notes on that. I've uh, written down your three favourite tracks. I'm going to check them out on Spotify and report back to you in a probably futile attempt to expand my musical horizons. Uh, I've gone for, I found this, 9, 1997 for me was a great year, uh, even in my admittedly narrow uh, field of interest. And I've got a few apologies. Um, Now, one of the albums that came out that year that you'd probably be familiar with, or I did think was noteworthy enough to uh, write down, was The Prodigy's The Fat of the Land. I think Mm -hmm. that was pretty big. Radiohead produced OK Computer, which was massive. Uh, Another album I quite liked by Live, Secret Samadhi. But three huge apologies to me. I love all these albums and still play them regularly. One. Foo Fighters, The Colour and the Shape, their second album. uh, It's got Monkey Wrench on it, uh, Everlong, all those sort of Foo Fighters favourites. Great album. Another one, Faith No More, Album of the Year. Absolutely love that. That was their last album before they split up. And another of my favourite, favourite bands of all time, Helmet, the New York hardcore trio who came out with Aftertaste. However... I have gone for, as my album of 1997, an Australian band from Lismore, New South Wales, discovered as teenagers in 1995 by Triple J's unearthed competition. They bought out a couple of EPs before recording their debut in 1997 and unleashing it on an unsuspecting music public. And I mentioned Helmet before. This, to me... This band is sounding a lot like Helmet, and that is the biggest of compliments. It's tight, it's crunching, it's riffy, great guitar, great bass, like the vocals. Who am I talking about? The band is Grinspoon, and the album is called Guide to Better Living. Uh, Grinspoon made up of Phil Jamison on lead vocals, Pat Davin on guitar, Joe Hansen on bass and Christian Hopes on drums. Been together a long time now, still going. Uh, not as strong as their initial stuff, admittedly. But this is a great album. These kids were still teenagers when they did this. What are the standout songs? Well, the first single was Sick Fest. Um, you've got Pedestrian, my personal favourite, Post-Inebriated Anxiety, Champion, another favourite for fans of the band, and Truck not a salute to Ben Rutten, uh, preceded him. Truck, T-R-U-K, in fact, is the spelling of that. But if you haven't heard this, this is Grinspoon at their earliest and at their rockiest. And it packs a up, this album, still played a lot, still love it. It is Grinspoon's Guide to Better Living from 1997. That is my album. Okay, Finey, what movie have you got
1: for us? Uh, could I, I'd almost want to nominate not Titanic. I hated it that much. Okay. But that's not really a movie, is it? Not Titanic. Um, you know, I mean, God. Couldn't they just drown in the first 10 minutes and let me out? I still haven't seen it. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Now I had a fair inkling it, what might happen. It hits an iceberg. Slowly. So my movie... Is not, I just wouldn't have thought I'd like this movie. I'm not a huge fan of Bruce Willis, I'm not a huge fan of science fiction, but I love this movie. It's called The Fifth Element, it's sci-fi comedy. It's actually a French movie, which is interesting because it's in English by famous director Luc Bresson, starring Bruce Willis in. Thank you, Glared Waitley, a dystopian future, <laughs> where he's a taxi driver. The actual representation of the future is quite brilliant. Um, he's a bit, you know, he's a he's a taxi driver with a past that is obviously in law enforcement, but he's run adrift or aground, and ends up as part of a quest. That has to takes him away from Earth, desperately seeking a fifth element. Without it, Earth's gonna be destroyed by have a guess who, the perfect villain in any movie, Gary Oldman. There's a love interest, Milekovovic, who's fantastic. It's funny. Um, to sort of encapsulate the craziness in an in an amongst brilliant science fiction concepts and images he ends up going to this planet searching for the fifth element as part of a radio promotion that he's won so his entire venture into this planet with you know aliens blasting him and wild things going on is all covered by a radio talk show host who's broadcasting it back to earth live as a program it's really clever really beautifully thought out, visually stunning and quite enjoyable.
0: All right. I I haven't seen it. You've uh, certainly heightened my interest in doing so. So uh, I've made a note of that one as well. Uh, Some big films in 1997, of course, uh, would get uh, death threats finally, if we don't mention this one, because it's a lot of people's favourite Australian movie, The Castle. Uh, I think we're both a little bit more reserved on that than some, but uh, it's enjoyable, the castle. Uh, Goodwill Hunting, Life is Beautiful, As Good As It Gets, The Full Monty, uh, Titanic, of course, you mentioned uh, in glowing terms, and Wag the Dog, a political comedy, which was pretty good as well. I, however, have gone for a thriller, and a cop film, and not necessarily my standard fare, but this one was particularly good. And a real pat on the back for Australia, the Australian film industry too, because the two leads are played by none other than Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce. And uh, I'm talking, of course, about LA Confidential by Curtis Hanson, uh, adapted from a James Elroy novel, that uh, wonderful crime writer. And talk about an all-star cast, Kevin Spacey, Russell Crowe, Guy Pearce, James Cromwell, Kim Basinger and Danny DeVito. The plot, well, I was refreshing my memory finding and even the Wikipedia explanation of the plot is that bloody complex. I couldn't keep up with it. It's been a few years since I saw this movie. I do remember, though, that it twisted and turned. A lot of times, far more than a your average twisty toony film does. Magnificent acting performances, particularly from Crow and Pierce. Kevin Spacey, very good doing that sort of creepy Kevin Spacey thing. And uh, James thing himself. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty obvious, wasn't it? But I didn't think of it. Uh, and James Cromwell. Uh, Also terrific in his role. Um, So, look, I'm not even going to uh, attempt to explain the plot other than to say it is a film about police corruption and uh, it takes several unexpected twists. Um, It's absolutely gripping and tense all the way up to the final scene. I loved it. It was actually nominated for nine Oscars, LA Confidential, only one, two in the end, beaten to the punch on several by your favourite film, Titanic, unlike the uh, Academy to go for the big production number. Um, but a great film. I think it's one of the, the best cop films that I've seen and uh, a lot of people, I think, agree with me. LA Confidential, my choice. Have you seen that, funny Yep. Do you like it? Uh, again, I can't remember the script all that well. I remember that I did like it. Yeah. All right, well, let's head to
1: T V now. Your TV choice. I think we're both gonna get very animated in the next few minutes. And this program, an animation, went for 13 seasons, and I think it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. King of the Hill, ah, set yes. in set in Texas. Um, small sort of a town in Texas. Some, I can't actually remember, Arlen, Arlen, Texas, Uh, centering around the family of Hank Hill, a super nerd, his wife Peggy, a size 13, shoe wearing, very self-confident, sometimes to the point of her own demise, mother, but, you know, a doting mother and their only child, the precocious, always funny, um, naughty, but fun Bobby Hill. Uh, It's sort of an ensemble cast. Hank's best friends are Dale Gribble, uh, next door neighbour, a a classic um, conspiracy theorist, nutcase, works as an exterminator, not very good at his job. His wife constantly in the early early seasons was having an affair with an American, Native American. Their child is clearly the product of that Liaison, but he doesn't recognise it. Um, and Bill, sort of a perennially single, slovenly, um, self-loathing, sad sack, but very funny. Yeah, it's 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 it really does tap into sort of small small town, but not small-minded America. It, it's it's great. Um, later series, uh, there's a Laotian family that's um, front and centre. I love King of the Hill, Rowan, but I've got to admit, it's not my favourite animation that came out in 1997. I'll leave that honour to you. Uh, yes,
0: sorry. And look, I've only seen King of the Hill a couple of times. I, I probably should watch a bit more of it, but it was certainly a, a peak era of animation wasn't it and uh, yeah I'm sorry I think we both would have chosen this if we had the chance uh, one of my favourite TV shows of all time if it's not the um, favourite it is certainly in the top five I'm speaking of South Park uh, Finey and I well, I think our senses of humour both lend themselves to this sort of stuff uh, i.e. we like comedy that's a bit bent and Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the creators of South Park, are certainly bent. Uh, they have been doing this since 1997. Uh, like King of the Hill, still going, and uh, King of the Hill
1: still going. You said, didn't you, Fanny? No, no, no. It ended in 2010. One of the just very quickly, one of the reasons it ended is Luann, who was a regular character, who's the uh, cousin who lives with the family, was played by Brittany Murphy. And, you know, she had that very ah, tragic passing. So with her passing, the show sort of um, went into permanent recess. Well, that's sad.
0: That's taken the wind out of my sails. Well, South Park is still going. In fact, they had the most recent show, uh, just a one-off pandemic special about a month ago, which was pretty funny. Um, But, yeah, Trey uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the uh, geniuses behind the show about... Well, centred around four kids who live in the fictional town of South Park, Colorado, but like any great show, there's a whole cast of characters who really make it what it is. The four main characters, of course, Stan Marsh, who's the pretty comparatively well-adjusted kid, unlike his old man, Randy, who is my favourite character. And mine. Kyle Broflovsky, the Jewish boy who um, cops a hard time from the next child I'm about to mention and most people's favorite character, I think, Eric Cartman, uh, the slightly overweight and uh, incredibly belligerent, loudmouthed, uh, selfish, uh, racist, you name it, uh, Eric Cartman is the personification of it. And Kenny McCormick, of course, in the early series, who was ritually killed off in every episode. But miraculously brought back to life for the next episode. But a
1: whole host of characters. Hang there. on, you can't, you can't go through every Port Adelaide game mentioning this player and not mentioning this character. I'm getting to him.
0: I'm getting to him.
1: And <laughs> uh, in fact, I'm not even
0: going to say his name, Finey. We will uh, give you a uh, musical representation of this character now. <laughs> storm
1: cloud turn into a for free. who's the kid with the heart full of
0: magic? everyone knows That's me Ah yes butters we love butters we love Zach Butters, but we love Butters Stotch from <laughs> South Park as well <laughs> <laughs> poor little bastard gets picked on by the others every week. My other favorite characters Randy Marsh we mentioned the parents are all pretty good value but uh, token who is, as he suggests, the token black kid in the show, Craig, Tweak, Wendy, um, who is Stan's love interest, and the, um, the uh, disabled boys, Jimmy and Timmy, who uh, were, spent a lot of a fair bit of time in the show together. And I was going to try and rattle off a few favourite moments finally, but there's too many. And I went through all the episodes, scribbled down my favourites right off the top of my head, I came up with, I think, 13. I'm going to <laughs> read you the episode titles and you can create your own memories because most people remember them. Undoubtedly, my favorite ever South Park episode is Chin Pokemon, where they all get obsessed with the Pokemon um, craze. And uh, unbeknown to them, um, the toys maker has implanted. Um, Jap- Pro-Japanese propaganda to make uh, to indoctrinate them and get them to bomb Pearl Harbor. Uh, that is a fantastic episode in Pokemon. But my other favourites: Gnomes about the underpants Gnomes, uh, Worldwide Recorder concert where they investigate the mysterious brown noise, and uh, uh, Mr Garrison goes back to confront his abusive father. In fact, I am going to quote this line: one of my favourite ever lines out of the show. Mr. Garrison takes the um, the bus to confront his father and knocks on the door and says, hello, Dad. And he says, hello, son. And he said, I've come to talk about it, Dad. And he says, talk about what? And he says, the abuse, Dad. And he goes, what? I never sexually abuse you. And he goes, I know. I want to know why not. <laughs> I don't know if we should use that too hey <laughs> <but Dad. laughs> <laughs> it, made, it made me laugh. Um, something You could Do With Your Finger, the one about the boy band. Scott Teneman Must Die, where Scott Teneman sells... No, carton. don't ruin it for people. Okay. No, I won't say what happens in it. Uh, Towley, of course, the uh, genetically engineered... Did you just burp, Fonny? No, just coughed. Okay. Um, Towley, the one about the genetically engineered towel who has a predisposition to getting high all the time. Uh, Aspen, which is sort of like their mid-80s ski resort film. The Death Camp of Tolerance, close to my favourite, with Lemmy Winks, the class gerbil, who gets inserted anally in um, Mr Garrison's gay teacher's assistance, Mr Slave's bottom. Um, My Future Self and Me, that's a ripper too. Uh, cancelled christian rock hard where they form the christian rock band awesome O, where cartman impersonates a robot make love not warcraft uh and i should never have gone ziplining which mysteriously reverts to the use of real life characters not animation which is pretty out there. there you go it's about 16 off the top of my head wonderful show if you haven't watched it and think it's all just kids being crass and toilet It is so much more than that. Some of the sharpest political satire I think I've ever seen. Wonderful, wonderful show. I know you love it, Finey. Uh, did I do it justice in that summary? You did indeed. You left out some of the great episodes,
1: of course. Go on, give us a couple. Well, tin ball <laughs> Oh, yes. <laughs> when Butters is, of course, forced to... Um, have two fake balls put on his chin, so he goes on a show for TV freaks. Because with Maury
0: Povich. The, yeah, the Maury Povich show gives uh, dis or kids with bad disfigurements a free yeah. trip to Disneyland. I'm trying to. Um, that my called, my two favourite episodes. That, that's called mention. that's called Freak
1: Strike, by the way. Yeah. Right. Um. Uh, the KFC episode. possibly my favourite
0: episode. Okay, quickly, quick synopsis of that one. That's where Randy Marsh tries to give himself cancer so he can get medicinal marijuana, uh, sticks his balls in the microwave oven and they become big enough for him to bounce around on. All the other guys in the town follow suit and are bouncing around on their balls. Yes. Whilst
1: Eric Carpenter becomes the official dealer for KFC because KFC is replaced by a medicinal marijuana joint. That's right. It's called medicinal fried chicken. Yeah, go on. And, and my other favourite episode is when Butters becomes a girl margarine to infiltrate the girls who have a, one of those folded up things, you know, that the boys believe they use to read the future. So they have to fake Butters' death. His parents believe he's dead because they throw a pig's carcass dressed like Butters off the roof. Um, They then go, they then uh, are told not to go up to the old Indian burial ground and dig him up, at which point Butters returns home after living with the girls dressed as a girl called Margarine. They think Butters has returned from the dead, throw him down in the basement, and a girl comes by to. I don't know whether it's a Jehovah's Witness or whatever, and they throw the girl downstairs for butters to eat because they think that he's the living dead. And the last line of that episode is, I would have just been happy with SpaghettiOs.
0: <laughs> All right. That is probably an appropriate note to finish on. I knew this segment had gone too long once we yeah. talked about South oh, Park. Oh, well,
1: we love it. We love South Park. All
0: for a good cause. All right. We're just about there. There's only one thing left to make this return episode complete, Fonny. And I think you know what it is. Let's do it now. On Footyology, The Rant Off. Rightio, we haven't had a show for a few weeks. Therefore, we haven't done one of these for a few weeks. So plenty of material to work with. Uh, I'm not sure what topic you're choosing, Fonny. But like I said earlier, I've been obsessed with the US election, and uh, I have a particular take on it, which uh, people may or may not like to hear. Uh, if you do like to hear it, good. If you uh, may not like to hear it, get stuffed. I don't care. I'm doing it anyway. Would you please count me in? One, two, rant-a-roo. I'm pissed off with Sky News, Finey. I never thought I'd see the day when an Australian news outlet actually managed to surpass Fox News in America as officially the Western world's most batshit crazy media organisation. But after the US election, there can be absolutely no doubt. Now, like a lot of people, I was glued to the coverage on CNN, which gave a textbook example of how to cover these things. These guys were absolute pros. There was expert John King's mastery of the touchscreen and knowledge of all things about the American Electoral College. Ditto his sidekick, Phil Mattingly, keeping us abreast of what all the latest figures meant. There was the brilliant hosting of Jake Tapper, Chris Cuomo, Anderson Cooper, Don Lemon, Wolf Blitzer, the expert commentary of the lovely Abby Phillip. Reporters dotted all over the place wherever something of importance was unfolding. It was superb gripping TV. Yet credit where it's due. Even Fox News, which I think we all expected to spontaneously combust when Donald Trump's early advantage in the count began to erode, was able to keep itself together long enough to start calling out the president when he began to play with the truth to a level far exceeding what he's regularly served up even over the past four years. When Trump completely lost the plot at a rambling 20-minute-long trip through his tortured imagination, even the guys at Fox News had had enough, cutting away and not holding back and telling viewers that their president had just pretty much jumped the shark. So what was Australian pay TV news network serving up? Absolute garbage, justification after justification for Trump basically refusing to accept the results of a democratic election. Practically every peanut on that network had a crack. In fact, thinking about it, there's enough peanuts on that channel to keep the guys at Nobby's in surplus stock for decades. The lovable Andrew Bolt, Alan Jones, Bronwyn Bishop, The angry little human sock puppet that is Paul Murray, Chris Fido Kenny, Rowan Dean, the guy who can't spell his name properly, that little douche from Sydney, James Morrow, Daisy Cousins, the one who dresses like she's the barmaid at a saloon in a Wild West movie. And yes, that other one I'm not going to name, but everyone will know who I'm talking about because writing about sexy footballers in a gossip rag 15 years ago and columns about people who give their babies bogan names was apparently the perfect qualification to become a political commentator. At least, though, Andrew Bolt finally saw the writing on the wall for Trump and managed to deftly jump off the bandwagon and call on the world's biggest baby to start conducting himself with a little dignity. Most of the others, though, more than two weeks later, are still going. Even today, Wednesday, the 18th of November, Miranda Devine, that News Corp columnist who recently had to pay damages of $200,000 for defaming a disabled nine-year-old Indigenous kid, yep, really, it was that bad, she was still at it, casting doubt on the election result and happy to peddle the types of bizarre conspiracy theories even most of the US's craziest white-wing types won't touch. Yep, in an Australian publication, and yep, It's being noticed, much of the rest of our global allies starting to observe in their own outlets that it's down under rapidly becoming the home of the media's most unhinged. That's some achievement, just completely the opposite of what our media used to be recognised for. Yes, these people are all as thick as two planks, but they're also a pack of shallow opportunists, ready to parrot any old crap for attention and a career advancement. My greatest fear now is that when Trump finally does accept he's lost the election and sets up that alternative media outlet he's been threatening, he'll come here to do it. Why not? Our media is now somewhere to the right of Genghis Khan. It's the perfect location for Trump to spout all his usual narcissistic ramblings unchallenged. And the scariest thing is that going by recent history, they won't
1: even be the craziest things we have to listen to. Very good, Mace. (laughs) very nicely put but they're insane there are some people on that station who are insane well yes i mean would you ever
0: really have thought that australian media could could go as low as that poor excuse for a news organization now seriously i ask you anyway anyway i've been going on about a lot so that's got that off my chest for these five minutes I will allow you to conduct your rent now in peace after I count you
1: in three, two, one, rant. From the day they were, they were just a concept, a glint in Fitzpatrick and Demetrius eye, I never liked Greater Western Sydney. I don't like the idea of an AFL construct and I certainly don't like the idea of an AFL team created to succeed Because without success, they'll have not enough members to be financially viable. Don't worry about St Kilda supporters, Melbourne supporters, or back then, Bulldogs or even Richmond supporters. We can wait a lifetime. This team had to get a premiership in seven or eight years. I couldn't stand them. I had little acronyms, my own versions of what GWS stood for. Gomez wants success. People know who game is, Is I'm sure. Games without supporters. Bit prophetic, that one. Greater waste of space. Go watch soccer. They were given all the advantages. I didn't like them. I didn't like the cut of their jib, but I'm all turned around on the subject because GWS were the heroes of trade week. The absolute gutsy performers that saved this game and, I've got to say, 17 teams in the competition from unthinkable pain because of the most stupidly devised system for free agency on the planet. That's right. They stood their ground. The first team ever to match a restricted free agent's offer in a code that actually sees the code itself giving away draft picks for... Good players going to great clubs. Talk is cheap, especially when it comes out of Mark Rasudo's mouth. Adelaide were going to stand their ground with St Kilda. And like so many teams in years before, they buckled. Because one in the hand is worth two or maybe none in the bush. Or even worse, having to take back a player on a multi-year contract for big bucks because they've matched the offer. But GWS did it. Jason McCartney was as cool as cool hand Luke sitting at a poker table with Maverick and the other great card players. He kept his hand tight and he sat and he sat and he won. And what's the victory for all of us? Yes, Rowan was right earlier. Geelong are making a play now and a good play for another flag. They're doing so with Higgins, Smith, and most importantly, Jeremy Cameron. But if GWS were not the first team to stand their ground and demand more than just what the AFL offered, they also would have had three first round picks in this year's draft. One foot firmly placed in the immediate future and another one firmly placed in development for the years to come. You can't let a team do that. It wouldn't have been fair. So well done, Giants. Well done, Jason McCartney. And up yours, the kids from Corio. No longer do I call GWS the greater waste of space. Now they are the team that got warranted selections. But more importantly, GWS stands for Geelong's Window Shutters.
0: <laughs> that's very good foy that is very good you are particularly good at uh as you offered earlier initials uh uh what are they called again acronyms yeah uh, very very no that was a very good rant well done and uh you make a really good point too and i know it's
1: been a hobby horse of yours so very but they s- they saved the day gWS i mean God, you know, imagine Geelong getting everything they got and keeping those three
0: first-round picks. That is a very, very good point, and I think you made it very articulately, as per usual. I'll tell you what, though, we've done a lot of talking, Finey. It's made me very hungry. What should I seek in aid of uh, replenishing my depleted reserves of energy? Well, you could fill your car up with petrol and
1: go to the Beatsworth bourbon wixie proof bakery, but that'd be closed. <laughs> Why don't you go to 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, and have a world famous hamburger? I'm not saying those pies you referred to weren't great, but they're not all that available. Whereas this burger, don't take it for granted, people, at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, it's waiting for you. It's waiting for your mouth. It's waiting for your appetite. Oh, that is vintage spruking, Finey.
0: While you're doing that, what about this problem? My house, it's falling down around
1: my ears. West Point Properties, woof, woof. No, that's more for trusty dog food. <laughs> they old Uncle Doug. And i tell you what, if Uncle Doug was around, you know what he'd say about West Point Properties? They're magnificent. They're the best. Nick Bartels, he's the one that sells, sells, sells. <laughs>
0: that's very good. Uh, you do remind me a bit of Uncle Doug Elliot uh, in character if not physical appearance which is fortunate yeah. for you.
1: Some people say I'm on the Uncle Dougs
0: uh, but I'm yeah. not <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Yes well that's an interesting question perhaps we'll discuss that one other way today as well <laughs> uh, Alright thanks uh, great to be back everyone hope you enjoyed the show uh, we're going to be back doing one podcast per week and uh, we will as a rule record on Wednesday so that's when to look out for the Footyology podcast and the format being pretty much the same as you have just heard today. Finally you want to get a final word in? I can tell. I do because I've just realised something.
1: What? The Mist Chokes on Dick, where they kill her, Mist Chokes on Dick Sea Monkeys episode and the global warming episode with Randy Marsh after Eric Cartman floods the next town over in a speedboat. <laughs> how, how could I forget him?
0: Of course, he is talking South Park. If you're wondering what the hell was that about, Um, you have a treat. You have a 23-season-long treat if you've never (laughs) checked out South Park. Miraculously, though, all the kids are still in grade four. Um, All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Uh, We'll see you later.